In his book entitled The End, author Mark Hitchcock records a conversation between two men. They're discussing end times events. The one says to the other, quote, prophecy distracts people from the present. To which it was replied, then there certainly is a lot of distraction in the Bible. (laughs) That's true enough. 29% of the Old Testament is prophecy. 22% of the New Testament is prophecy. 737 different prophetic topics fill our Bibles. Hitchcock goes on. Of the 333 prophecies concerning Jesus, 109 were fulfilled in his first coming, leaving 234 to be fulfilled in his second. Our Lord mentions his second coming 21 times, and you and I, we are exhorted to be ready for it 50 times. But we can also understand that man's view of end times teaching. Because prophetic events don't seem that important. They're complicated. They're debated. They're so far away in the future. We have a lot to worry about today. Most of all, they're hardly relevant to my life. Well, then along comes a chapter like Matthew chapter 24. And in that chapter, Jesus teaches end times events. And he does this not to satisfy curious minds, but so that all of his people can live in light of the end. Now this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 32. Jesus is teaching something called the Olivet Discourse. He and a few disciples are on the Mount of Olives, and he's answering two questions. In chapter 24, verse 3, when will these things happen? They're asking about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of age? Now, last time we identified the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as one of those answers. And Jesus then went on to lay out the sign of his coming, verses 9 through 26. That's a seven-year tribulation period. Again, this morning we're picking up where we left off, and Jesus answers the sign of his coming. But I want you to notice something about his answer today. He's going to pivot. Not only is he teaching end times events, but he's now applying them. He's now showing those people, showing us how they impact our daily living. You see, knowing what is to come and believing it's true, that affects how we live today. Our Lord is going to use illustrations to apply his teaching to us so that we can live in light of the end. So this morning we're going to travel along and discover three ways to do this. And I want to begin in verse 32 with our first point. We are to live an informed life. How do we live in light of the end? We live an informed life. In a word, Jesus commands us to learn. In verse 32, Jesus goes on, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too 
When you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. In verse 32, Jesus points to the fig tree. And each spring, the sap in that tree would flow from the roots up through the trunk out to the branches. And this barren tree would begin to sprout tiny leaves. One could look at the tree and understand summer approaches. Summer is near. Now, our Lord just explained the seven-year great tribulation period. I'm getting that number seven from the book of Daniel and from Revelation. We learned that last time. The events then are verses 4 through 28. They describe the end of the age. It's that time when this world will undergo judgment. And what Jesus says is that just as this fig tree begins to leave, you can know that summer's coming. Just as the events of these tribulation, that indicates the return of me. Verse 33, he is near, he is right at the door. Now, I mentioned last week, and you know from end times readings, that some of these passages are hard to understand. We now encounter some of those verses. Now, you know that my preferred method of teaching or preaching is expository preaching. One feature of this preaching is it's a verse-by-verse, in-depth teaching from books of the Bible, just following along. What, what verse comes next, that's what the message is. Now, some of these passages are great. They're like a nice, slow-pitch softball, nice and easy. Everybody agrees on them. Others are fastballs. And this morning, I'm getting hit by a pitch. Now, whether this stuff is clear or whether it's complex, as I mentioned, the text is our guide, so we're going to keep going. And this morning, we encounter verse 34. Verse 34 through verse 36 contains at least two challenges, two interpretive difficulties. The first comes in verse 34 right away. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The question is, who is this generation? Is it the disciples? Mark records there were four asking Jesus these questions and listening. Maybe it's their contemporaries or those who were alive during the ministry of Jesus. These things will take place before you die. They will not die until these things take place. So we need to go back now to discover what things. What things will take place? Well, look at the context. Look at what Jesus just taught. Did his disciples, did his contemporaries in verse 15, do they see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel standing in the temple? No. In verse 29, did they see a, a darkened sun and a dim moon? Did they see stars fall from the sky? No. You see, the end times teaching of Jesus, it, it forms a perfect chain as chapter 24 unfolds. One, one verse, one passage is linked to the one before it. In verse 34, Jesus says these things must take place. That connects to verse 33. 
He says he is near when you see, quote, these things. That connects back to verse 32. It's his illustration. A sprouting fig tree indicates summer. A great tribulation indicates his return. That connects back to all that came before, verses 9 through 24, that great tribulation. Those living, when all of these things take place, they will not pass away. Seminary professor Dauerbach has said it this way, what Jesus is saying is that the generation that sees the beginning of the end also sees the end. And when the signs come, they will proceed quickly. They will not drag on for many generations. It will happen within a generation. A little over seven years from start to finish. Well, that's the first interpretive challenge, identifying this generation, the witness who will see these things. And these things, again, are all that Jesus just taught about that great tribulation. Secondly, in verse 36, Jesus knows a lot about what's going to take place, does he not? But he doesn't know when he will return. What does he say? Of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, referring to himself, but the Father alone. This is perplexing. Jesus is fully God. We say he's omniscient, that he knows all things. But we also know Jesus is fully man. We knew that he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. And we must hold these two truths, complementary truths, in each hand, side by side, at all times. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And sometimes in the Bible, there's passages that emphasize his divinity. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Jesus reads minds. But there's other passages that emphasize his humanity. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Our Lord learned as he grew up. At all times, we want to hold both of these truths and not let go of one to emphasize the other, but to remember that the Bible teaches us about Jesus, and it does so emphasizing different aspects at different times. I think Philippians 2 takes us behind the scenes to this. We get a peek behind the curtain as to what's going on here. It's verses 6 through 8. This passage may sound familiar, Speaking of Jesus, he existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this helps us understand that our Lord voluntarily limited His divine attributes. During His ministry on earth, it does not appear that He knew when His return would occur. He voluntarily set that knowledge aside as He stepped down off the throne of heaven and took on flesh, so to speak. He says the same thing again, essentially, in Acts chapter 1. But with all of these interpretive challenges aside, You can know about the return of Jesus. 
And you can know about end times events. And you can know the lead up and the signs that accompany his return. In fact, that's what Jesus did right away this morning. He calls you and I to learn, to learn. He wants us to learn, to live in light of that return. Now, in a moment, he's going to apply what he's taught us. He's going to call you and I to be alert and to be faithful. Later in chapter 25, he's going to call you and I to be watchful and to be serving. But the point I want you to see is that his teaching on these end times, this is practical stuff. Yes, it's complicated and there's different views and it's sometimes hard to understand, but but it has present day application. So to begin with, will we learn? Are we open to learning what Jesus has to say? I mentioned this morning in Sunday school, as we get into January, we're going to do a, a deep dive into end times prophecy in our Sunday school class. We'll look at what all the Bible has to say about what's to come in the end. We'll go verse by verse through Revelation. That's our opportunity to learn, to take this passage and apply it to our lives so that we can understand what is to come. And here's the best part about that. It's not so we can have neat timelines and those vivid graphics with all that are to take place, amazing pictures, but it's so that we can live today in light of the future. That's what Jesus does. He, he promises blessing for those who do. Now, you know the book of Revelation, and rightfully so. It's known as a book of prophecy, but it's also called the book of blessings. Seven times in the book of Revelation, it says, blessed are, or blessed is. I'll give you an example, chapter 1, verse 3. The one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep what is written, are blessed because the time is near. Now, did you catch that? Who's blessed by God? What did that verse say? The one who reads, and the one who hears, and the one who keeps. All of those 22 chapters, all of the challenges of Revelation, they're good, they're worthwhile, because those who hear and keep, they are blessed. Well, Jesus here in this parable, early in Matthew, in our time together, he did not teach us to learn revelation. He did not teach us to learn end times prophecy. He didn't do that just so Matthew could write something in his gospel. He wrote this to bless you and to equip you to live in light of tomorrow and to live so today. I want you to see secondly in verses 37 through 34 that you and I are on, we're called to live an alert life. Not only are we called to live an informed life, as we just discussed, but we're called to live an alert life. This is going to be one point of application that that Jesus makes in light of the end. He'll make a few different application points. But what Jesus wants from us is he calls us to, to live alert and to live aware and to live awake. And just to remind you of the extent of, of the Lord's love for you, I, I want you to to observe what he's doing in these next few verses. Now, he's going to speak to you in plain English, technically Aramaic, but you know what I mean. He's going to meet you in the everyday world of what you already know. Remember, back in verse 32, he spoke to us about a sprouting fig tree. We understand that. You and I have trees in our yard. They sprout when it's spring. We know summer's coming. 
Now he'll speak about Noah in the ark. You and I understand Noah and the account of the flood from Genesis chapter 6. In a moment, he'll speak about a thief in the night. Hopefully you don't know about a thief in the night, either because you received one or you were one. But you understand the concept. You understand the concept because you have a lock on your door. But the point is that Jesus is going to take these, these everyday items and he's going to use them to fill this in, to teach us to live in light of the end. Because he wants us to understand. He doesn't want all of this to be a great mystery for us. To borrow from Churchill, this is not to be a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. In other words, Jesus teaches us so we can understand. Jesus is aiming for clarity on this topic, not confusion. And these next two illustrations, again, they're going to show his affection for you. He wants you to understand. And understand so that you would act. Verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. I think it's helpful with this passage to step back for a moment into the days of Noah. Back into Genesis chapter 6. You know that Noah was a righteous man. Verse 9 tells us he's blameless in his time, that Noah walked with God. I mean, that's no insignificant statement. It's greater still because of the world in which he lived. No one else around him was a righteous man. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, sin had become a lifestyle. In verse 11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had gone the way upon the earth. That word corrupt appears two times in three verses. The first two speaks, excuse me, three times in three verses. The first two speak of the earth's condition, and then the last time it speaks of its cause. It's it's because of man. The earth is corrupt because of men. Creation has devolved into chaos. But what did our Lord emphasize in this passage? Life went on. God in His mercy, He allowed life upon this earth to continue, even as things went downhill. In fact, that's the emphasis in verse 38. Jesus speaks to something that seems very mundane and very routine. This fallen creation is eating and drinking and and marrying and giving in marriage. This is pretty normal stuff. I mean, Jesus says they're going about daily living, routine. They're walking the dog, baking desserts, picking flowers, watching TV, eating dinner. Verse 38, none of this is bad. 
until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Year after year passed as that ark grew. I mean, the first few years, I bet you go by Noah's, it's just a pile of wood. Then a keel, then some frames, then the deck beams, and then the hull. And all this time, people had an absolute disregard. And even then, as two of every kind of animal came and filled that ark, for them it was just a great day to paint the lamppost. They're consumed with everyday life, and they've missed the boat. And don't get me wrong, the Bible will speak about Noah. I think Peter writes that he was a preacher of righteousness. So it's not as though they walked by his property and didn't hear the truth. But they would not be alert. They did not stand watchful. They were not expecting. And Jesus says, so will it be. When he comes after the tribulation, this will be the hearts of men. Now, this is a lesson for us today. This is a lesson for you and I today, this morning, in this room, to get right with God. Because we do not know what tomorrow holds. And don't assume that that you have a tomorrow. Don't just enjoy all that is good and yet, yet miss God. Don't get so caught up in creation that you miss the Creator. Be alert. The Bible says that God has determined your end. The decision's already been made. Job chapter 14, verse 5, your days are determined. Your number of months is with God. Your limits God has set so that you cannot pass. See, for you and I, our end may come surprisingly or, or suddenly or even rapidly. But you can know that you will go to be with God if it does. And you can know that this morning. Today is the day of salvation. For those who are alert, who are ready, who are watching, today can be that day for you. The Bible teaches us that if we we realize that we have sin and that sin has separated us from God, if we believe upon Jesus that he has died for that sin and he's risen again, we can be saved, we can be made right with God. There should be an urgency about that based on what Jesus is teaching. Jesus teaches us that there's only going to be two options. Jesus speaks at the end of that reading that there's going to be a a taking away or there's going to be a removal. In verse 40, there's two men in the field. One is taken, one remains. Verse 41, two women are at work. One is taken, one remains. The point that Jesus makes here is that, that one is a believer in Jesus and that one is not. And there's two options and there's two places to go. Now again, this is one of those sticky passages. Some believe that this is talking about the rapture. I believe that's an imminent event, that that Jesus will rapture his church before the great tribulation. I don't think these verses speak about it. I think the context so far has been about the second coming of Jesus All these parables, the illustrations, they're all concerned with that. It all flows from verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming? And there's debate about who is coming and who is staying. In the context, remember the story that we just heard. In that flood, who was taken away? Who was swept away? 
God swept away the unbelievers, those who were not alert to His rescue and His salvation. I believe those taken away here are in verses 40 and 41, they are taken away to judgment. And Jesus will get into that at the end of chapter 25. That's the sheep and the goat judgment. Now, admittedly, these are challenging verses and and people disagree on them, but I think we can all unite on the purpose, the reason Jesus lays this out. What is he telling us? To be alert, to be awake, to be aware. And this is a huge theme for our Lord. He's not going to let his foot off the gas on this. He's going to give another illustration in verse 42. He speaks of a thief in the night. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming and an hour when you do not think he will. I want you to see a little repetition in these verses. Now, we know that if Jesus says something once, that's enough. But if he says it twice, well, that's a flashing red light. Notice in verse 42, Jesus gives a command. He says, be on the alert. In verse 43, he's going to speak about the head of the house. He's anticipating a break-in. What does he say? He would have been on the alert. Some of your English Bibles have it differently. Drive home the point. Stay awake or keep watch. But that's not all. There's another pair to observe here in verse 42. For you do not know. Verse 44. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. Let me just pause for a moment here. Now, when the Bible says that no one knows, no one knows. I'm going to give you just one illustration because a lot of people think they know. could refer to the rapture, the second coming, whatever it is. When the Bible says that no one knows, no one knows. In his 2008 book, God's Final Witness, Ronald Wineland predicted the end of the world. And Jesus would return in September of 2011. He had to adjust that date, obviously, to May of 2012. When May passed, he adjusted the return to Pentecost in 2013. Here's a statement from his website, quote, As John was given the book of Revelation to record while imprisoned by the Roman government on the Isle of Patmos, Ronald Wyland was given to write this third book while falsely imprisoned by the government of the U.S. for evading the payment of taxes. So convinced was he that Jesus was returning that evidently he quit paying his taxes. We need to be on the alert. And not just for the return of Jesus, but for all of the stuff that you and I might read or listen to or follow. Be alert to Daystar TV. Be alert to the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Be alert to the Christian Broadcasting Network. Be alert to Lifeway Publishers. Be alert to Christian book distributors. Just because someone says they're a Christian does not mean that they are. Just because someone talks about God, it doesn't mean that they rightly divide his word. 
I'm not saying that everything that these networks or distributors, these publishers might produce is, is wrong or in, in error, but all of them, you and I, we must be alert. We must be discerning to what they're putting out and to what we're taking in. Now, I want you to bear in mind that in this, um, in this illustration, uh, the Lord is comparing himself to a thief. Just know that has its limits. Jesus is not a criminal here, he's saying. Again, he's using the element of the unexpected, that I'm going to come along as a, a thief comes along unexpectedly. And he's using this element of surprise to, to drive home his point. And he's saying, again, if the homeowner knew that the thief was coming, he would have been prepared. So I want to ask you this morning, do you live on alert? Are you alert? Are you awake? Are you aware? Are you living in light of the end? Do you live on alert when it comes to what you take in in terms of, of media or, 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 or writings or books? Hopefully we're not asleep. Hopefully we are not unprepared for eternity. Because Jesus really drives this home. He wants us to live a life on alert. And he wants us to live a life fully informed. And thirdly, he wants us to live a life of effectiveness. It's verse 45. Jesus wants us to live an effective life. And what he does here is he goes to to a parable. He's going to speak of the parable of the faithful and unfaithful slaves. And he's going to begin to answer about what does it look like to live on alert? If I'm to live on alert, Jesus, what does this look like? He begins to answer that question now. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of the household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour in which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our Lord here contrasts two lifestyles, two different ways to live in light of the end. And in this parable, the return of the master is is a long way off, or so it appears. And in light of that, how are they going to live? Now, you need to understand that the backdrop for this parable is in the ancient Near East. It's a wealthy, upper-class household. Someone of means in this time might travel on a long journey. Perhaps it's business. The the entire family would go along with him. And while gone, he would put a servant in charge of that household. And upon his return, a full report would be given of how things went, an accounting. In the first example, Jesus commends this slave. The first slave is a commendable one. That's clear. He's been given a job, he's been given a stewardship, and he does it. This is a slave who is not serving himself, He's not serving his own business interests, but he's serving his master. Verse 45, the slave is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. He can be relied upon. This slave is consistent. Church father Chrysostom says that faithfulness in little things is a big thing. 
Well, that's what we see with this first slave. In this first illustration, this first slave, he's serving his fellow slaves. What else do we learn about him? Verse 45, this slave is sensible. Faithfulness to God is sensible. Most Bible versions read wise, faithful and wise. Obviously, that's the opposite of a fool. The diligent slave is the opposite of a fool. And we're going to meet the fool in a moment. And in verse 46, the one commended here is blessed by his master. What does he get? He gets an additional trust. One commentator said, God has no larger field for the man who is not faithfully doing his work where he is. Now, in contrast, consider the unfaithful, foolish slave. He's the one who thought he had much time. He believed the master would not return for quite some time. He lived unalert. He lived unprepared. The description Jesus gives him is someone who is both proud and hedonist. Hedonist meaning pleasure-seeking. He mistreated his fellow slaves, and he, he ran with sinners, and there's a hypocrisy about his life. In verse 51, Jesus alludes to this. He's pretending to, to do one thing, but he's doing another. Specifically, he pretends to do the master's work, but he really doesn't do it. He may even have begun well and had good intentions or motives, but he doesn't live in light of the end. He is not ready for the return of his master. He's not ready for the return of Jesus. And Jesus pronounces judgment. To summarize all this, the end matters. What is to come matters for us. What is to come tomorrow or in the future matters for you and I today in the present. Jesus gives great attention to teaching this. His illustrations and his applications, there's more of those to come next week. He wants us to know that that, that we must live on alert and in light of the end. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story. It's an old fable. There's three apprentice devils reporting, talking to Satan. And the first apprentice says to Satan, I will tell people there is no God And Satan replied, that will not fool many because they know there is a God. The second devil said, I will tell them there's no hell. And Satan said, you'll never fool many that way. They know there is a hell. And the third one comes along and says, I will tell people there is no hurry. And Satan says, go, and you will ruin millions. Jesus wants you and I to live in light of the end. And he wants us to live informed of what is to come. And he wants us to live alert today, watching. And he wants us to live active, doing God's will, doing the Master's will before he returns. And I would say today, in light of the passage, is a fitting time to consider what you're holding back. Are there there closets you need to clean? Are there fields that you need to tend to this morning? Are there areas of your life that are overgrown? Areas you need to straighten out? Areas you've been thinking, you know, I'm going to get to that one day. Any of us can think we have more time. And in fact, some of us might. But that's not the point of Jesus, is it? 
He calls us to live for him now, to live for him today, and to invite him in now, to lean upon his grace and to lean upon his strength and to live in light of the end. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your teaching. At times it is hard to understand, but we labor on nevertheless. We know we understand the value of the end, how important that is to you. and We believe that you are returning and you will come. We also understand how important it is to, to be on alert and to live today in light of tomorrow. And I pray that for us today, Father. You would help us in our struggles and help us in the many ways that we feel at times beat up by life and we feel hurdles that we can't overcome. Lord, I pray for victory. I pray we'd overcome them. I pray that you would give us grace and give us strength to live as though you're coming back tonight. Oh Lord Jesus, we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.